This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today, I'm honored to be joined by New Mexico's Secretary of State, Maggie Toulouse-Oliver. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. So, Secretary, when folks hear the term Secretary of State, most probably think of Hillary Clinton, Condoleezza Rice, Madeleine Albright, Rex Tillerson, if you want to be really sad about it. (laughs) Most voters probably don't even know who their secretary of state is, if they even know that their state has a secretary of state in the first place. What exactly is your role in government and why does the position matter? Thanks for asking that question. It's so funny. I told the story on Sunday. I met a gentleman and told him what I do for a living. And he said, oh, so you work for the governor, you know, as the secretary and I was like, no, that's not what I do. <laughs> so the position is important. Uh, most states have a secretary of state. Some don't. Some have a lieutenant governor. But in most states, the secretary of state is responsible for conducting elections in their state. And that, that tends to be the role that uh, brings the most focus, the most attention. Um, that is what I do in my state. And that is my first and foremost duty as the chief election officer. It is an extremely important job. Um, making sure that elections are being run fairly and accurately uh, and that voters have an opportunity to cast their ballot. In New Mexico, I'm also the chief ethics officer. So I oversee about eight different statutes that have to do with government ethics, ranging from uh, campaign finance reporting to uh, whether or not uh, uh, government officials are following a governmental conduct act, which is like our code of ethics uh, for state officials here in New Mexico. And then thirdly, um, in my office, as in most Secretary of State's offices, I also uh, run the business services division. So if a new business is forming or a nonprofit in our state, they have to register with our office. Um, they have to file annual reports, et cetera. And then there's a, a variety of other sort of what we call operations um, aspects of the office. So if a person wants to become a notary or a notary public or if they need uh, an apostille, in other words, to have some documents verified if they go overseas. A wide variety of duties, and um, it keeps us very, very busy. So what have you done under your tenure as Secretary of State? What have been your major achievements? So a couple of big things. I've, I've only been in office for about a year, nine months now. I was elected in a special election in 2016, and I'm actually running for re-election again this year, which is Super fun. Um, so a couple of big things we've achieved in that short period of time that I'm particularly proud of. First, um, our legislature over seven years failed to uh, act to fix our campaign finance regulations in New Mexico. And so third party organizations, uh, also called independent expenditure groups, have been coming into our state. Uh, and not reporting what they're spending in campaigns and for particular candidates. And, and so it's been a huge 
dark money uh, problem in New Mexico for years. And finally, our legislature in 2017 passed a bill, but it was uh, not signed by the governor. So she bailed in that last regard. And so what I did is I, uh, under my authority as Secretary of State, I'm, I'm permitted to promulgate rules uh, so that campaigns and candidates and third-party groups uh, know what the rules are and how to follow them in our state. And following court rulings, we wrote a rule that says uh, if you're going to invest money uh, to help support elected candidate or against a candidate here in New Mexico, you have to disclose uh, what you're spending and who your donors are and what you're spending your money on. So uh, that's the first thing that we've accomplished that I'm extremely proud of. Um, we've also made a lot of strides towards modernizing and improving our election process. This year, we passed through the legislature bill called the Local Election Act. So starting next year in New Mexico, all of our nonpartisan elections, so uh, school board and city council, and uh, we have water and soil conservation districts, hospital boards, etc., those elections will all be conducted on the same day, on the same ballot. Uh, it'll make it a lot easier for folks to know when those elections are happening and to participate in those elections. It's going to reduce election fatigue, and hopefully it's going to really drive up voter participation in these important elections uh, for these bodies that are making important decisions in our lives. So it's very interesting that you're able to promulgate rules as Secretary of State because one difficulty I've heard expressed by candidates for this office and other constitutional offices is the difficulty of not being able to pass legislation. So not necessarily being able to implement all of the systemic reforms you see fit. How have you seen that in practice during your time as Secretary of State? Well, that's a good point, and it can be frustrating, especially when you're trying to manage an election process and the ultimate, certainly the laws of the election process are out of your hands. I actually, before I was Secretary of State, I was the county clerk in Bernalillo County, which is the Albuquerque metropolitan area, for 10 years. So I actually managed the elections on the ground um, during that time, and so I can totally understand this frustration that other secretaries might have. I have as much power to write rules as the legislature permits me to have, right? So when it comes to uh, the general conduct of elections and making sure that the laws that are on the books are implemented correctly, I have the authority to write rules. When it comes to how does it work in practice, our campaign finance reporting laws, I have the power to make rules. But those are all rules that have been given to me by the legislature, and they've been given to me because the legislature has been reluctant to, and I think rightly so, get into the minutia of how these laws are, are supposed to be implemented because, um, number one, um, they are not the administrators, and number two, there's so many situations that occur uh, that, that make these... Um, make it fluid, right? So there's a need to be able to amend and adapt as the situation on the ground changes. Um, so that's been very positive. But by the same token, you know, there have been many experiences I've had over the years where I've been frustrated because I'm required to implement a law that, you know, had, you know, didn't foresee a particular problem or that is maybe in conflict with another law, right? So we're having to choose, well, which law do we follow here? How do we try to follow both? So that can definitely be frustrating. So you've touched on this a bit so far, uh, voting rights. The voting rights group, the Franchise Project, gives your state 
a 19 out of 30 in terms of ballot access, citing aspects of voter registration, online access, and incarceration as major impediments to the franchise. Could you tell our listeners what the state of voting rights is in your state? Sure. Um, so voting rights in New Mexico are in pretty good shape. Um, we have online voter registration, but of course, and I think probably what the report is reflective of there is that we have a great digital divide issue in our state, right? So if you live in an urban area, or if you are a person that has a computer and internet connectivity in your house, um, then it's easy for you to get registered to vote online. But if you live in a rural area, particularly in, in any of our tribal reservations around the state, it can be very difficult. So there is a need to ensure that those voters are also having their opportunity to get registered to vote and to update their registration. In terms of being able to vote early, we have very robust early voting laws. Um, so it's very easy. Uh, all clerk's offices uh, conduct early voting starting 28 days before the election. Satellite offices open uh, three weeks before the election uh, at locations across various counties and stay open until the Saturday before election day. We have no fault absentee voting, which means that you don't have to have an excuse uh, to vote absentee. Any voter in the state can apply for an absentee ballot. And we recently implemented a new law that allows voters to apply for those absentee ballots online. They no longer have to mail in an application for an absentee ballot. Um, we also have vote centers on election day in uh, every county that chooses to have them, which means that no matter where you live in the county, you can vote at any polling location. You're not limited to voting at your polling place on election day uh, for your precinct. So if you happen to be out of town uh, in a different city for work or if it's just more convenient uh, for you to vote on your way to uh, pick your kids up from school or what have you, we have provided that opportunity. We also do not require photo voter ID in Mexico, which a lot of states do and a lot of states have started doing over the last 10 years as part of this very cynical, uh, you know, political um, move that's taken place uh, in states like Wisconsin, Texas, North Carolina, etc. Um, so we do make it very easy to pass a ballot once you're at your polling place. There are challenges. It's a big state. Um, it, it, sometimes people have to travel a long way to pass the ballot in person. Sometimes the digital divide gets in the way of registering and making sure uh, that folks have the information that they need in order to know how, where, and when to pass the ballot. Um, but we're in good shape and we're continuing to move in the right direction, and um, I'm going to continue pushing policies that make it easier for voters to pass the ballot. And what are some of those policies? What reforms do you hope to continue making? Right now, we have uh, an administrative version of automatic voter registration. So it's very simple and easy now for every voter in the state who goes to the motor vehicle department to get registered or to update their registration. Um, what I would like to see in addition to that is same-day voter registration in New Mexico. Um, too often, we have voters who have moved either into the state or out of the state or, or to another county in the state. Uh, and they haven't had a chance to update their voter registration in time uh, for uh, the election, and they are unfortunately unable to vote because they're not registered in that county. Uh, it doesn't make sense for these voters to be excluded. A 28-day deadline uh, made sense a long, long time ago when county clerks had to write uh, voter rosters by hand, <laughs> um, 
and they needed a lot of time to prepare. But with the technology we have today, we, we really don't need uh, all of that time, and it would make it easier for voters. Um, I think we're thinking in our state about looking at vote by mail. Um, I particularly like the model that Colorado has because the Colorado model is that every voter gets a ballot in the mail no matter what, every election, but they get to choose how they return their ballot. So they can mail it back or drop it in a secure drop box or go to a polling location and stand in a voting booth and mark their ballot. Um, I like this option because it ensures that every voter gets a ballot on the front end, but it really allows them to choose uh, how they how they want to vote their ballot uh, on the back end, uh, which I think is reflective of our society and our culture and the directions we're moving. So those are the things, some of the things that that we're looking at for the future here next year. So, Secretary, August 21st marked the first day of the nationwide prison strike, which I bring up because incarceration has, for our nation's history, been one of the most effective forms of voter suppression. Demand number 10 of the prison strike reads, quote, The voting rights of all confined citizens, serving prison sentences, pre-trial detainees, and so-called, quote-unquote, ex-felons must be counted representation is demanded all voices count now as i mentioned earlier the franchise project rates incarceration as one of the greatest difficulties to ballot access in your state what is the current situation in that regard so new mexico does some good things in this regard and some not so good things in this regard um we do allow uh, ex-felons to have their voting rights reinstated. So if you've committed a felony and you've completed the terms of your sentence, whatever those terms may be, whether you were sentenced to jail time or not, if you were sentenced to probation, um, public service, whatever, whatever was required of you, once you've completed the terms of that, your voting rights are supposed to be automatically reinstated. Um, now, unfortunately, that hasn't worked that way in practice because my office, the Secretary of State's office, and county clerk's offices have not been able to get accurate and timely data from our corrections department as to which felons have completed the terms of their sentence. Even worse, there have been occasions when we've gotten old and out-of-date data and we've uh, accidentally uh, taken away the voting rights of individuals um, because of the data that we received from corrections that was inaccurate. And so... One of the solutions um, that I have supported in the past to fix this problem and that I would support moving forward and hopefully uh, in next year's legislative session we will see a bill like this is to basically say that if you are not in jail, uh, you have a right to vote regardless of uh, where you are in terms of completing the terms of your sentencing. This is an idea that has a support from a lot of the county clerks, uh, whether they are, are conservative or liberal, Democrat or Republican, no matter what part of the state uh, they come from, because administratively, uh, this makes their lives a lot easier. They don't have to worry about whether or not um, a person should be on or off the voting rolls. A, a voter doesn't have to jump through hoops to get a piece of paper from the corrections department to prove that they uh, have completed the terms of their sentence. It makes life a lot easier. I think there is a debate to be had and a discussion to be had as to whether incarcerated individuals should have the right to vote. Certainly, uh, those individuals who have not been convicted of a felony, but who are currently incarcerated, folks who are awaiting trial, 
um, uh, folks who have had uh, their you know their probation revoked or or what have you. Um, those individuals uh, should be able to vote, or they should be able to vote from jail. And so that's another issue uh, that we've struggled to get right in our state: is how do we create a system that allows uh, those folks to be able to participate while they are in their jail cells? And that's something that I'm also committed to working on trying to fix in the future. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout Shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So you've mentioned a lot about trying to pass legislation What would you say the importance of this year's elections are to reforming voting rights in your state? We're critical. Um, Again, I think we've been able to do a lot here in the state. Uh, We actually accomplished um, some of our best, most effective uh, voter inclusion legislation when we had a a Republican uh, House of Representatives and a Republican governor a couple of years ago. That's when we passed online voter registration uh, and a couple of other uh, great modernization bills. But I think to really move the ball exponentially forward in our state, um, having a legislature that is open to some of these reforms is really critical. In the primary election here in New Mexico this year, uh, a couple of, of highly regarded, powerful Democrats uh, in our House of Representatives lost their primaries. And this is interesting for the sake of... of voting rights and expanding the right to vote in New Mexico because these were two so-called conservative Democrats who routinely voted against uh, such voter expansion laws as same-day registration. And the, you know, the excuses around why that happened were, well, you know, I, I, I as, a, as, a legislature, as a legislator want to know who my electorate is. I want to be able to reach out to them and talk to them. Um, you know, my personal belief is we should be trying to talk to every registered voter, right, as a candidate for office. So I think that um, we have the potential to move forward with those primary election changes. And of course, and the general election is going to be important as well. Um, depending on who's elected governor in the state, we could see a governor who's going to sign same-day registration bills, who's going to sign these reform bills around incarcerated voters or voters who have... Um, been convicted of a felony. We could see legislation signed uh, in the future that allows us to go to all-male voting. Or 
we could see the status quo and worse. Uh, we could see an effort to start to roll back some of the real progress we've made in the state. So, of course, this election is needless to say absolutely crucial to what we can do in the future. And what have you done as Secretary of State to engage millennials? And what are you doing on this campaign to further engage them? That's a great question. I'm not a millennial. Uh, I'm a Gen Xer. And, you know, I grew up in a time, uh, I didn't grow up with computer in my house. You know, I, you know, if I needed to, to talk to someone, I would call them on the phone or go see them in person. And so the technology uh, that uh, millennials have grown up with is still a little foreign to me. Um, I was laughing earlier with you because I was having technological issues, right? Logging into this call today. So, um, I'm really dependent on uh, a handful of folks. I work very closely with the Young Democrats organization in my state, folks who have their finger much better on the pulse of what millennials are interested in talking about and the ways they're interested in talking. So we do things like um, Facebook Live videos. Um, I We do um, video casts with the Young Democrats. We're trying to engage better on all platforms of social media, not just Facebook and Twitter, but Instagram uh, and other potential platforms. I'm trying to do as much outreach as I can in the high schools uh, and in the colleges around our state. Um, we've created opportunities when I was county clerk for uh, student voters to cast a ballot at their uh, school. So, for example, now the University of New Mexico has not an, not only an election day polling location, but an early polling location. Um, I routinely talk with um, student media outlets uh, and participate in, in 2016 when I ran for Secretary of State. I participated in a student journalism uh, online Twitter, uh, sorry, it was a Twitter debate. Um, which was kind of unusual, but, you know, it was an interesting idea. Like, can we use this platform um, to reach more people and to engage folks? And, and does it actually work for something like a debate, right? So I, I'm willing uh, and have participated kind of in any idea that, that's thrown at me, but I'm very reliant on the millennial generation and, and the folks that are my friends and allies and supporters and the folks that work for me that are millennials to advise me um, as to what are the things uh, that I should be doing because the reality is that our voting future is in the hands of millennials and our government is in the hands of millennials. And it's really important for me as Secretary of State to do everything I can to get as many of the millennial generation registered to vote and participating in the election process and engaged in civic life in New Mexico. And what message do you want to send to our listeners who aren't sure if they are interested in voting, who have seen politics, both parties fail us so many times, and are skeptical as to if their vote can make a difference? Yeah, it can be ugly and it can be disconcerting. And I know that feeling just as well as anybody else. And I think the reality is that um, there's a saying that I really like, which is that um, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So if you're not participating, if you're not voting, if you are not making your voice heard wherever it is that you live, then the decisions are being made by people who were elected by people other than you. Um, in any given election, uh, if we say see super high voter participation of 70%, that's still only 7 of 10 registered voters that made the decision uh, as to who was going to be elected. And then that individual, who represents only 7 of 10 registered voters, uh, is going to be making decisions that affect your everyday life. 
Um, literally, you cannot wake up in this country uh, and do anything without having the government affect your daily life. If you get in a car, uh, whether or not your car has safety features, when you drive down the road, whether that road is uh, paved and whether there are stop signs or stoplights, right? I mean, literally anything that you would do on a daily basis, grocery shopping, whether or not you pay tax on the food that you buy, um, when you are registering for school and how much your tuition costs is being determined either directly or indirectly by elected officials. Um, so I think it's really easy to think that, that we can get through life in this country without having government or the decisions that we make when we participate or when we don't have no effect on our lives. But the truth is, every day when we wake up in the morning in this country, we have those decisions affecting our lives. And again, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. It's so important to make that voice heard no matter what. I think that's so true, especially seeing what's going on in Georgia right now, where the Secretary of State, who just so happens to be running for governor, is working very hard to suppress the black vote to ensure that Stacey Abrams, who could potentially become the first black uh, woman governor in U.S. history, does not win. Uh, So it's so important on a state level to ensure that we have people like you who are actively interested in ensuring that everyone has access to the ballot. I mean, I, I share that view, obviously. And I think, you know, what we just talked about, sort of the, the carrots, if you will, to vote, um, I, those are really important. I mean, you know, the fact that these decisions are going to be made, whether we participate or not, so we might as well be helping to, you know, make those decisions is, is the carrot uh, of voter participation. But the stick of it, uh, if you want to look at it from, from a reverse point of view, is look at what people have gone through in this country to get and and preserve the right to vote. Look at what women had to go through in the early 1900s in this country. Look at the hunger strikes from prison. Look at standing in the freezing cold and protesting, um, you know, President Wilson's administration, right? Um, look at what African Americans in the state of Georgia had to go through and have had to go through just to make sure that they have the right to vote. Um, look at the Jim Crow laws that they had to endure. Look at the fact that they finally won the right to free and unfettered access to the ballot box with the 1965 Voting Rights Act only after members of the black community in the South were literally killed or attacked by dogs or beaten within an inch of their life only to have that right, that unfettered right to vote. And now here we are in 2018 and you have a Secretary of State in that state who is once again trying to make it hard for black people to vote. Rolling back early voting in black communities is absolutely trying to prevent those communities from participating. And so when we think about that, when we think about what people have gone through to get access to the ballot and just to be able to exercise their constitutional right as citizens of this country, it makes it even more important for us, those of us that have the free and unfettered right to vote, to go to the polls and to do everything we can to help those people in those communities where it's hard to make sure they get a chance to cast their ballot as well. It's such a sacred right. We can't take it for granted. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and speaking to us today. It was really my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And we'd love to speak with you again after you win election to a full term. And to our listeners, as always, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon 
go to our website, millennialpolitics.co, to check out our articles and our merch, and stay tuned for more episodes of the podcast to hear interviews with great folks like Secretary Oliver. Thanks for listening. Thank you.